Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. We're in for a treat because this week's guest is Dr. Mitzi Joy Williams, who's a board-certified neurologist and world-renowned multiple sclerosis expert and best-selling author who's passionate about educating and empowering people affected by MS. Mitzi, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Jason. So let's start with your journey and your practice with regards to MS. How did this all start for you? Yeah, so it's interesting. I actually always thought I wanted to be a family practice doctor. <laughs> and then I took this amazing class in college called Brain and Behavior, or actually it was called Drugs and Behavior. And while some people were a little bit more interested in learning about their weekend activities, I was actually interested in the brain. And so I became fascinated by how the circuitry of the brain works. And also I felt like being a neurologist and working with the brain was a lot like detective work. So I could look at a problem and then trace my way back to see where the problem started and kind of where it originated. And so I decided to become a neurologist and was able to do a lot of work at an MS specialty center during my training training in Augusta, Georgia. And that's where I fell in love with MS. So I love the patients. I love the journey that I help them on. And I really love the longevity of my relationship with them. And so that's one of the things that really drew me um, to the field. So it's 2020 and medicine has advanced tremendously, but in some ways we still get so many things wrong. And I talked to whether it's a pediatrician, neurologist, I'm curious from your perspective, yeah. a neurologist who, who treats people dealing with MS, like what are we still getting wrong about MS in 2020? Yeah, so I think the thing that we're getting wrong is that we have to really look at things from a holistic approach. So I do believe in many of the medicines that we give for MS that they do make a difference because I have certainly been through an era where we initially didn't have treatment, had very few treatments, and looking from there to now, people are doing a lot better overall. But I think the piece that we're missing is that there's no medicine that does everything, right? We still have to take care health. We still have to eat a healthy diet. We have to exercise. We have to do things like meditation and take care of our mental health. And I think that there needs to be a lot more focus on the holistic piece of caring for a person with MS than just focusing on the actual medications, which only play a part in overall health. So you mentioned the, the holistic approach and who immediately comes to mind is, is our friend, Dr. Terry Walls, who has a tremendous story and developed the Walls Protocol. What have you learned from Terry? Yeah, so I mean, it's very interesting. So we've had several conversations um, which have been very enlightening. And I think that the thing that I uh, take away most from Terry is that she really is trying to focus on understanding the role of diet the role of other things that people can do for themselves, like meditation, stress reduction, education, and how that affects overall health. And I think that's a piece that's largely been missing, obviously, because if you think about where money goes for different types of research experiments, people are going to put things toward money, put money toward projects that make them money. But focusing on diet doesn't necessarily make you any extra money. And so I really like that she's dedicated herself um, to focusing on this to see how it really impacts overall health and if there are people who can employ certain diet and other behavioral modification techniques to really help treat their MS. 
So I think you're spot on when you say people are interested in things that, that make the money when it comes to government, pharma, resources, et cetera. And, and there's not really a lot of opportunity with regards to nutrition. With that said, we are obviously huge believers in the power of nutrition. And so wh what are some of your recommendations for, for those, you know, put two buckets of people, like people who are suffering from MS with regards to nutrition and those for those listening who are just really want to take care of their neurological health and ensure that they stay sharp or maybe MS runs in their family and they want to try to avoid it if they can. What are your overall tips? I guess those three buckets of people. Yeah. And so I think the thing to keep in mind is that, again, there are many different buckets of people and everyone with MS is different, right? So there is no one size fits all. There is no cookie cutter answer for any particular person. And so usually we kind of start where that person is. I usually recommend if we can get in with a nutritionist, if we can get in with a dietitian to get some overall recommendations. Sometimes people come to me with ideas. There are many of my patients who've done the WALS protocol, who've done and other types of diets, whether they're gluten-free or other paleo diets, et cetera. But we start somewhere. And so each person will have a different, I've had patients really on every kind of diet that you can think of. And if they are committed to it, many of them are successful. So it's about picking a plan that's right for you. Obviously that's healthy, right? Not eating cheeseburgers every day, but picking a plan that's right for you and, and picking something that you can commit to and stick to. I think the other thing that's very key is encouraging participation of other care partners. So it can be very difficult to make a transition if your family is still eating hamburgers and hot dogs every day. And so I often have found the folks that are most successful is where either a couple or their family have decided to make some changes overall. And that's helped that person continue to be successful and accountable if they have some other input from someone else. So completely aligned that there's no one size fits all approach and it's hard to generalize. But at the same time, with, mm -hmm. with that said, are there certain foods you would recommend for people, yeah. read this great Instagram post. You're a fan of ACH. I'm just going to call it ACH because I will butcher the pronunciation. So, you, acetylcholine. <laughs> can you say it again? Acetylcholine. Ac acetylcholine. Okay. How do mm -hmm. I do? Okay. You did great. So, so let's start there and branch out. So, let's talk about ACH and its role and where it's found in food and just what goes on in the, the brain. Yeah, so it's a very extremely important neurotransmitter and it has a lot of different functions. So it has functions in what basically we call the parasympathetic nervous system. So that's kind of when you think about the two types of responses, the sympathetic nervous system is fight or flight. And then the parasympathetic is kind of rest and digest, right? So when we think about the smooth muscles in our gut and how we digest foods and things like that, acetylcholine plays a very large part in the different processes that go on at rest and when our body is digesting and taking care of itself. Another place where acetylcholine is extremely important is in muscle movement. So there are disorders um, such as, let's say, Lou Gehrig's disease, where there are, we're missing or not able to process or use 
acetylcholine properly, and that can actually lead to weakness of the muscles. So it has functions really related to the muscles in our internal organs, but also in our external organs when we're moving around. In terms of different foods, there are certain types of foods where you can um, obtain acetylcholine. I won't say that I have any particular ones that are my favorites over others. I generally recommend that people eat a lot more fresh, raw, roughage type foods, less processed foods. And again, the way that paradigm kind of looks for each person is a little bit different, but certainly it's a hugely important neurotransmitter and we need to make sure that we're taking care of our bodies to use it properly. So dark leafy greens. Absolutely. And then also a little fish, chicken, like wild salmon. I think it's in there too. And to clarify, so is ACH different than choline or is choline short for ACH? So no, it's not the same thing. It's not the same thing. So choline is more like an amino acid that helps with building some of the with some of the the enzymes in our body. Acetylcholine is not something that you can take by mouth. So it's a neurotransmitter that's already in our body. So they're not the same thing. So I'm glad you because learned something new. Uh, so with regards to choline, like, can you talk about its importance and some of your favorite sources? So, yeah, so, so like we said, I'm not as much of a nutrition expert, (laughs) but certainly, you know, if we talk about different types of fish, we talk about leafy green vegetables, those are good sources. And again, it helps to build. So it is a component that helps our muscles to function properly. And it also helps to build the different amino amino acids and um, enzymes in our body. But it is not the exact same thing as acetylcholine. So it's not like taking choline would perform the same function as acetylcholine, the neurotransmitter that's already in our bodies. Got it. Got it. So look, it's 2020. It is. We are just filled with uncertainty. And so... From your perspective, you're a neurologist. Are there tips for how we can deal with this uncertainty in a healthy way? What, what's your advice for us? Absolutely. So I get this all the time. So one of my biggest, I bet you do. Um, yeah, <laughs> for myself and my patients. One of my biggest tips is to know when to unplug. Right. So there's so many amazing and rich sources of information, the Internet, our television, social media. But sometimes we just need to unplug and kind of rest our minds, because sometimes we get so flooded with information, just depending on the outlets that we look at, that it can be extremely stressful. And sometimes we just need to take that time to relax kind of relax our minds, maybe meditate, focus on other things, spend some quality time with friends or family, whoever's in our household, and just kind of unplug. So that's number one, knowing when to unplug, um, because sometimes that can significantly decrease stress and anxiety. I think also finding creative ways to connect with our community is extremely important. So especially with the pandemic, which kind of got bad, then it seemed like it got a little better. Now it seems like it's getting bad again. We have to find creative ways to continue to interact, whether those are Zoom conferences. Sometimes my girlfriends and I will do a happy hour on Zoom while we'll be in our own houses and we might have a cocktail and just talk to each other or we might Zoom with family once a month and making sure that we stay connected, especially for folks who don't have people in their house with them. I think it's extremely important to make sure that you're staying connected and you're not 
becoming completely isolated. And then I think the other piece is to find good ways to use our time. So since we can't go and do some of the things that we used to do, maybe finding a new hobby, finding some books that you've been wanting to read, maybe not just kind of vegging out in front of the TV and binge watching everything. Take the opportunity with that extra time to do some of the things that we've always said we wanted to do, but we didn't have time to do because we've been on the move so much. And so I've definitely found that to be true since I have no sky miles <laughs> since March of this year because I've been grounded. So I found myself doing some puzzles, reading a book, listening to some new music and picking up some old hobbies. I love that you said sky miles. You give away your Atlanta location. Delta <laughs> loyalist. <laughs> I am all the way. It's it's an important point. We're smack in the middle of the holidays, and many people can't travel. They can't see their loved one loved ones, and there's a loneliness epidemic. And we had a guest on the podcast, Marta Zaraska, who had this really scary statistic that loneliness was associated with a plus 23% increase in mortality, plus 23, like, so that, and we already wow. had a mental health epidemic going into yeah. this. You had the other scary statistic over the summer where I think one in four young adults strongly considered suicide. Wow. That was a wow. CDC number. And so I, I from your perspective as a neurologist point of view like what are other things like i, I love that you're talking about connection mm -hmm, whether mm -hmm. it's zoom or reaching out like what else should we i feel like we're starting to talk about this but it, it's still we've got a lot of work to do here can you explain like in neuro i'm curious like what goes on in the brain mm -hmm. when we're lonely so yeah, so so there is a very significant mind-body connection, right? I remember probably the first neurologic patient that I actually saw as a student before I decided to become a neurologist was a person who basically had tried to commit suicide and they were in a wheelchair. And so my initial thinking as a naive student was, oh, they took something that made them not be able to walk. But as we got into the exam and as I was working with the professor, what we realized is that there was just an extreme amount of mental stress and anxiety after that event. And that led them to have these symptoms where they really were in a wheelchair for a year. Right. So I think the first thing to recognize is that the mind is extremely powerful, right? And once we began to challenge that assumption, we realized that the patient could function a lot more than they thought they could. So the person right? wasn't so, paralyzed, but they were in a wheelchair. No, wow. they were not paralyzed, but they were in a wheelchair for a year, right? So the mind is very powerful. I've seen a lot of different things. People who have symptoms that look like strokes, people who have symptoms that look like seizures, even in some cases, symptoms that look similar to MS, but it is basically kind of the overwhelming stress that has kind of taken over and resulted in physical symptoms because we're not dealing with it adequately. So I think that mental health is an extremely important part of physical health, just like cardiovascular health is an extremely. So I kind of I look at them on an equal basis. And I think that one of the difficulties is that often our mental health issues are under recognized and, and not focused on because especially here in the States, we have this mentality, you keep moving, move it or lose it, no pain, no gain, you keep going till you pass out, don't be a baby. But really we're putting ourselves our mentally and physically under so much stress that it causes us to have symptoms. And once we have those symptoms, then we have to stop 
and say, okay, well, let's pay attention to that. And then that kind of leads back to us dealing with the mental health. And the goal is to kind of head it off before we get to that point. So I think that's extremely important. So as a neurologist, I often recommend that people pay very close attention to their mental health and treat it just as important as they would treat if they had numbness in a leg or weakness in a leg. If they're having symptoms or signs of depression, anxiety, we go in a lot of detail about those symptoms, which can often be for MS specifically can be symptoms of MS like fatigue, insomnia, many of their many other parts to stress aside from just um, sadness and crying, kind of typical things we think of with depression. And so I really try to focus and emphasize that and also emphasize how the mind can be very powerful and how we can often have symptoms that manifest because we're not adequately coping um, with stress. So I recommend lots of um, things like exercise. I recommend that people find ways to kind of effectively and deal with their stress in a healthy way. So exercise helps significantly, even sometimes the things that we eat, the things that we watch and the things that we take into our minds and into our bodies. And then also in many cases, counseling, if it's appropriate. In some cases, people People need medication in some cases they don't but certainly again my motto is medication plays a part and you play a part and there's no medication that totally gets rid of the part you play in your own health so I always focus on empowerment and what you can do to help yourself so I'm glad you mentioned nutrition and I'll use an example so dr. David Perlmutter is a friend and he's been on this show and he's a very strong point of view on nutrition specifically grains and he's not in a fan grain brain and He's brilliant, we love them, but it's a strong point of view. And what, what I think is interesting, when people aren't feeling well, and I've been there, we've all been there, you're not feeling great, you're a little down, what do you reach for? Chips, ice cream, chocolate. And so we reach for this idea of like comfort food, which I, I hate, I almost wanna call comfort food discomfort food because it makes you feel good for like a minute, but it actually, and I wanna hear from a neurologist's perspective, some of those foods, like what happens where you have that like, I. I feel good. I have that sugar high. For me, I love donuts. I, I go to the donut plant here in New York. Amazing. Great donuts, guys. Even have a gluten-free option, but sorry, still lots of sugar. If I have, you have the donuts, I feel great for a couple of minutes. Then like, ugh, blah. Like what's, I, I'm curious, what, can you just walk us through like what's happening in the brain when we reach for that comfort food that gives comfort and then not so much? Yeah, so a lot of it is about program behavior, right? So we look at things that kind of made us feel good in the past and we repeat those types of behaviors. And then in terms of kind of the feel good, it often releases either endorphins, which are released when we exercise the same types of chemicals. And if the pattern is ingrained enough in our brain, it almost becomes like a reward circuit. One of the things that fascinated me about neurology was this idea of the dopamine circuit and how dopamine is a chemical that makes us feel good. And we begin to repeat and repeat behaviors, whether they're good or bad for us, that release that same chemical and allow us to have that feel good feeling. But obviously it's not a long lasting effect. And so it often leads to one of two things. Either we kind of say, okay, this is not working. I need to find some other way to deal with this. Or we do more and more. And then that leads to other problems like obesity, heart disease, and other medical problems that make us feel worse as well. So yeah, but it's the endorphins and the dopamine circuit. So here's the billion dollar question, the trillion dollar question. How do we break that habit? So I have become a huge proponent of mindfulness. Now I am by no means an expert. 
on mindfulness. And I'm sure you've got many people in the Mind Body Green family who probably know a whole lot more about it than I do. But I think that mindfulness is the key, right? Paying attention to our behaviors, not just doing things automatically and finding ways to replace those negative behaviors with positive ones, or even just the ability to take a pause to think. So I've read a couple of good books about it. There's one that I really like called, it's called Savor. And so it's a really good book and it just kind of, and it's specifically uh, focused on diet and food, but just kind of talking about kind of getting to the root of where these habits came from. For instance, my love of sweets came as a child. Like sweets were always treats that I shared with my parents. So my dad was buy some cookies and he'd put them in the cabinet and we would sneak and eat the cookies at night. And that was like our little fun secret. And so cookies are fun for me, but cookies are not fun for my hips or my back um, or my health. And so kind of finding ways to interrupt those habits to recognize them, to interrupt them, and then replace them with other positive things, I think is one of the keys to help breaking those habits. So I, I don't know if this works for everyone, but what works for me is I've, with regards to, so I believe in lifestyle. I, I don't believe it's all or nothing. And so I'll use donuts, for example. I love a great donut. But it, what I do is I say, look, if I'm going to have a donut, I'm going to have donut plant. Like they're the best donuts in the world. Like they're amazing. And I might have a donut. We're going to have the best. Or if I'm going to have a cookie, it's going to be Levain Bakery here. It's like a, for New Yorkers listening, you're, you're going to know what I'm talking about. Like the best quality. I'm not going to say yes to like the crappy donut or the crappy cookie. Like if I'm going to do it, it's going to count. And I don't know if that makes any neurological sense. I know I'm a, I'm a bit odd sometimes, but it works for me. <laughs> I mean, so I think, again, the plan is different for each person, right? And so it depends on your experiences and your ways of coping with things. But for some people to be like, okay, now my problem would be, I'm going to say, well, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it all the way. And then I'm going to do it today. And I'm going to do it tomorrow. And then I'm going to do it the day after that. And then I'm going to do it the day after that if I can get to it. So for some people, they have to go cold turkey, forget all of it. For some people, they can kind of do a little bit. Some people need to go cold turkey and then slowly reintroduce. But you have to find that thing, I think, that fits for you but I have a lot of patients where that works for them too and they say this is going to be my cheat thing and I'm going to cheat and then I'm good or I, 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 I someone once said to me and I forget who it was uh, and I love this why do we call it cheat why don't we call it treat get the negative talk out where it becomes like I'm cheating it's a bad thing there's shame yeah. versus like treat yeah. I'm enjoying this it's amazing Exactly. 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 Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So definitely is a more positive way to think about it. I think, though, the thing to also keep in the back of our minds that's important is that, and I'm sure this, our body begins to crave what we give it. So if we treat ourselves a lot, then we begin to crave those treats more and more versus if we are eating healthy things, then we crave those things more. So I think for a person who overtreats like myself, I kind of have to do it in small doses. <laughs> so so com coming back to where we started in MS, we mentioned Terry Walls, we mentioned your perspective and finding where holistic sits, where modern medicine fits and, and, and it's one puzzle and these are these are various pieces what do you think like where where are we today with i i know in speaking with terry 
it was so critical for her to get the powers that be, so to speak, in the world of MS to like recognize her protocol and the power of nutrition and like, hey, and, and Terry also takes medication and has developed the whole protocol. Where, where do you think like we are in that conversation with the MS establishment, if you will, with the role of nutrition, with the with the role of meditation, some of these things and like blending the East and the West Right. Where do you think we are today? And we and compared to where we were like five years ago, ten years ago, I remember talking to Terry five or six years ago. It was like people thought she was absolutely crazy, and some people still do, I think. But for the most part, like she's been accepted widely by a lot of powerful institutions within MS. Right. So I think we've come a long way. I think that from the time that I started training, we weren't really talking about diet and exercise and nutrition very much at all. I mean, we, in general, but I think that the conversation has increased and improved significantly, especially in the past five years. There are many of our larger organizations, such as the MS Society, that are putting funding toward projects that focus on a healthy lifestyle and kind of the impacts of exercise or lack of exercise. And so I think we've come a long way, but I think we have a long way to go, right? I am not... I spend a lot of time focusing on lifestyle, but I think that it may not be the case for all of my colleagues. And so I think that there has to be a lot of education within the medical community, again, about the importance and about the importance beyond just saying, eat right and exercise, right? Kind of knowing more detailed information and resources to give our patients. And so I'm hopeful, especially with the work that Terry's doing and many others, that we will have more resources and information and specifics to give our patient, but I think we still have a ways to go in terms of making sure we educate the neurologic community about the importance of this and also about things that we can, tools that we can give our patients to make them successful. So you mentioned educating the MS community and something I know you're passionate about and working on is the racial disparity in a lot of the studies. And how can we get a more diverse population in these clinical trials? Because it is not proportional to those affected, and that's a travesty. Absolutely. So there is a lot of research, at least here in the U.S., that suggests that the risk for MS is actually highest in black women, which was something very contrary to what we've traditionally been taught. And so the other thing that we see is that there are a lot of poorer outcomes in some of our diverse populations. So more walking disability at younger ages. There are people who have more cognitive problems, difficulty thinking, more problems with their MRIs, more lesions, things of that nature. And we don't really understand the dynamic of why that's occurring because we don't have um, enough participation and enough of diverse populations in our clinical trials. And I think there are, are several solutions to that. I think one is making sure that people are educated about kind of what the role is and the goal of clinical trials are, and also of the benefits, right? So certainly one of the hesitations is that people don't want to be experimented upon, which again, when we talk about cheat versus treat, kind of the mentality or the wording that you give it um, makes a big difference versus saying that this is access to cutting edge care. You get great care. You are seeing your resource. You have access to a lot of resources that you wouldn't have regularly and you're helping the whole community, right? So kind of focusing on the benefits, I think in terms of education is hugely important. And then I think in terms of providers, we need to make sure that we're asking people and not assuming that they don't want to be involved, because certainly there's a long sorted history of experimentation and research, especially in black populations here in the U.S., that makes some people hesitant. 
And so I think that we have to make sure that we are reaching out and educating. And I think at an institutional level, we have to make sure that we're increasing access, right? So if the only person who can be in a clinical trial is a person who has got time to take off work every couple of weeks and can take a whole day off and has a nanny to babysit their kids while they're doing it and all of that, then you're definitely going to narrow um, the, the amount of people that can be involved. And also when we look at our trials, and we look at our inclusion criteria, if we make it so strict where you have to be perfect to get in, you're also going to automatically exclude populations that have more comorbidities like diabetes and hypertension. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done, but you know, I th- I'm very hopeful that we're making strides toward improving it and also decreasing those health disparities. So in closing, in your world as a practitioner, I'm curious, what concerns you And on the flip side, what excites you? Yeah. So, gosh, so what concerns me is definitely making sure that we are inclusive in the work that we do. And I think making sure that we encourage people to advocate for themselves. So again, I am not of the mindset that I give somebody a bunch of pamphlets and tell them to go home and pick what they want to start on. I think that we need to make sure that we are having true shared decision-making where we sit down, explain the pros and cons with people and their families, and then we all come to a conclusion together. So I'm concerned that we need to make sure that we're doing that and that we're doing a good job with it. And I think that the things that excite me is that there are so many new innovations, especially when we talk about neurologic disease. Every time I get a journal, there's a new therapy that's been approved. There's something new in terms of discovery of how a disease works that we're beginning to understand and that we're beginning to pay attention to things that we should have been paying attention to all along, like diet, exercise, the impact on overall health. And so I'm really excited that people are open to new ideas and that we're exploring things that have been under-recognized and underserved for some time. And for someone who maybe just received an MS diagnosis personally or a loved one, what's your advice for someone who is just entering into this world right now and upset, confused? What's your advice? So my first advice is always just take a deep breath, right? Take a deep breath and process, right? It's a lot to process. And then also to make sure that you engage with whoever your healthcare team is to make sure that you begin to educate yourself and to make sure that you include care partners, right? Who are those people that will help support you through the process? Also those people who will help remind you of the things that you committed to and also who will help advocate for you. So I encourage everyone, you're your own best advocate and you are the best expert on your own body. So we have to make sure that we are going in with objectives, things that we want to address and make sure that as patients, we're getting what we want to be addressed and not just listening and digesting and leaving and not really understanding what happened. And do you think, what does this world look like in say three to five years, in your opinion, if you could wave your magic wand or look in your crystal ball, what is, what does MS treatment look like in three to five years? Well, we'll definitely have more options. I think that we will hopefully have Um, better guidelines about different nutritional practices and how they affect the disease. One of the biggest issues, which we didn't touch on today, is that there's a lot of research looking at the gut microbiome. Ooh, let's talk Um, about that. 
Sorry, it just keeps on. We didn't talk. How can we not talk about what? Let's talk about. We love the microbiome. Okay. So yeah. So there's a lot of research looking at the gut microbiome because the gut really educates the immune system. And so, what is the link between the things we eat and are some of the things that we eat or the chemicals we're taking into our body actually educating our immune system to make it have more of an inflammatory response? The answer is we don't know, but it's a huge area of interest in the field of MS. And there have been research studies in mice actually where if you remove the gut flora, you can't induce MS in those animals. And then if you return it, you can induce MS because there's a way that we study MS in animals where they induce the disease. And if you remove all the gut flora, you can't cause MS. But of course, we need some of the flora, right? And so there's this big question about how does how is the immune system being educated and are the foods and how are the foods that we're eating or the chemicals or flora um, in our gut affecting inflammation, inflammatory responses versus non-inflammatory responses. So that's a huge area that we just really just are at the tip of the iceberg with in terms of MS. Wow. So does the future look like some sort of microbiome sequencing for those people suffering from MS and identifying like they're missing this sequence or they have this sequence and like this is where fecal transplants come in and all that like you're nodding yes, but is that what we're looking at? That's, I mean, so that would hopefully, I don't think we're going to be there in three to five years, but hopefully in the future, we will have things that specific. And I think the other thing that we would love to have is biomarkers that kind of predict who's responding to what medication and if we're actually having a good treatment response. So I think there are a lot of things that are in the works, but we've come a long way. If you think about it, MS is a disease we've known about since the 1800s, since 1868. There were no therapies approved until 1993. And from 1993 to now, we have upwards of nearly 20 different therapies and we're learning more about how it works in different people. We're learning more about the role of diet, the gut. So we've come a long way. So I'm very excited about the future. Amazing, amazing. Well, Dr. Mitzi Joy Williams, thank you so much for taking the time. I love that we close with the microbiome. Yeah, see that? You see how I snuck that in there? I just snuck it in there right at the end. That's a big one. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure.